Calgary. The growth of the trends that I've talked about in the United States means that there's now a fighting chance for resistance to this colonial settler project in the metropole, which it can't do without. Hopefully, sooner or later, the situation in Palestine and the Arab world will change for the better. When that happens, then the war on Palestine can finally be brought to an end and the people of Palestine can finally find peace. That's Rashid Khalidi, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Rashid Khalidi on Palestine, a case of settler colonialism. The conflict over Palestine is a century-long war involving a settler colonial movement, Zionism, which succeeded in forming a national entity, the State of Israel. The term settler colonialism may not be well known, but it accurately describes what has happened to multiple regions of the world, from Ireland to Canada and from New Zealand to Palestine. Indigenous populations have been subjugated and displaced. In the case of Palestine, the Zionist movement was supported by superpowers, first Britain and then the United States. President Truman was told by State Department diplomats that an overtly pro-Zionist policy would harm U.S. interests in the Middle East. To them, Truman said, I'm sorry, gentlemen, but I have to answer to hundreds of thousands who are anxious for the success of Zionism. I do not have, Truman added, hundreds of thousands of Arabs among my constituents. Our guest today is Rashid Khalidi. He's the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University and editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies. He's the author of many books, including The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. He spoke in Amman, Jordan, in mid-December 2019. And now, Rashid Khalidi. Uh, I'm going to speak in English, but I hope that won't be an obstacle for any of you. If any of you have been to the United States, you'll know that Americans have a very limited understanding of the realities of Palestine. Many of them believe that what they saw in the movie Exodus or what they see in the media accurately represents what is happening in Palestine. We know, of course, that that's not true. I want to talk tonight about how I chose to counter Americans' limited and largely false understanding of the modern history of Palestine. The first thing I decided to do was to attack what I think are very pernicious and false views of the conflict in Palestine. I argue that this must not be understood as it's commonly described in the United States, as a tragic struggle between two peoples or two national movements over the same land. That's a very common understanding uh, in the United States of the conflict in Palestine. Even worse, a more extreme version of this would have it that the only reason that there's conflict is pa in Palestine is because anti-Semitic Arabs are trying to foil the just struggle of the Jewish people to establish their own state 
in their ancestral homeland. And this is a, a version of history that claims a biblical uh, uh, antecedent. Against these completely false interpretations of the history of Palestine, I set out the following argument. Now, this audience will not find this argument unusual. When I talk about settler colonialism, there's probably not one person in this room who doesn't know what Istamar is. Istamar istithani. We know what it is. But for Americans, this is a completely different way of viewing uh, the conflict. And I argue that what has happened in Palestine over more than a century must be understood as a war waged on the people of Palestine to establish a settler colonial project in their midst and at their expense. Again, there's nothing strange in this description for this audience. In the United States, this is a shocking, radical argument. I argue that this is a war that was not just launched by Zionism or the Zionist movement or the State of Israel. I argue that Zionism, the Zionist movement, the State of Israel could not have been created without the support of different great powers at different times in history. First, Britain, from the time of the Balfour Declaration, 1917, until the end of the mandate, 1948. Then, the United States and the Soviet Union at the crucial time of partition, the 1948 war, the Nekba, later Britain and France in the 50s and 60s, later, again, the United States. I argue that this is a, sh a joint project between Zionism and these powers. It's not an Israeli war on Palestine. It's not a Zionist war on Palestine. It's a war to implant a settler colonial project in Palestine waged by the great powers that endorsed it, supported it, armed it, and continue to hold it up to this day. I also try and make comparisons between the Zionist case and many other cases of settler colonialism. I talk a little bit about Algeria, I talk about the United States, I talk about Canada, New Zealand, Australia, Kenya, South Africa. And we live in a silo. We think we're unique. We're the only people who've suffered from settler colonialism. We're not. There are dozens and dozens of other cases. And it's useful and important to make comparisons to these other cases. However, there's one very peculiar aspect of this settler colonial offensive against the indigenous population of Palestine. And this is that the settlers did not come from the metropole that supported them. They were not British. The British didn't send British settlers to settle Palestine. They sent British settlers to Kenya. They sent British settlers to Uganda. They did not send British settlers to Palestine. The French sent French people to Algeria. People from the metropole extended the power of the metropole over the settler colony. That's not the case in Palestine. Unlike Algeria, Unlike North America, the Zionist movement drew settlers mainly from the Jewish populations of Eastern Europe and Central Europe. They were not British. The British facilitated the process. Without the British, the process could not have taken place. But these were not British settlers settling a British colony. Moreover, these settlers came with a distinct political aim to establish their own independent state. We know this from the very first writings of Herzl. His first book is called Der Judenstaat, The Jewish State. He didn't come to establish a colony of the British Empire. He went, came as part of a colonial endeavor to establish a Jewish state, a Jewish political entity in Palestine. 
Palestine constitutes a unique case of settler colonialism. It's not like any of the others in some respects. The settler movement, the Zionist movement, which aimed to found a new national entity in Palestine and has been successful so far in doing that, was independent of the metropole. They depended on the British in many ways, but their financial power was not drawn from Britain. Their financial power was drawn from the United States and other parts of Europe. In the 20s, they brought in capital inflows that were more than 100% of the GDP of the Jewish economy. They were bringing in more money annually in the 1920s than the entire Jewish economy of Palestine was producing. Vast amounts of money. Even in the 1930s, during the Depression, they were bringing in 30 to 40% uh, of the GDP of the Jewish economy of Palestine. That money was not coming from Britain. The British Mandatory Administration did everything possible to facilitate the, the success of the Zionist movement. But the Zionist movement was, in this respect, independent. It had its own base of support outside of the British Empire. And this was and is a great strength of Zionism. And in this, obviously, it's very different from other settler colonial movements. When the French state decided it could no longer support the experiment of French colonialism in Algeria, halas, it was over. When the British state decided that it could not sustain the Rhodesian colonial experiment, it was over. It was finished once the metropole pulled the plug. Israel has many metropoles, and that's part of the reasons for its viability. Now, one of the things that I argue in an American context where saying that Israel is a colonial settler reality is a harsh and difficult fact for people to accept is that I'm not making this up. This is not my analysis. I quote Zev Jabotinsky. I quote Herzl. I quote every Zionist leader up to the 1940s, all of whom described their movement as a settler colonial movement that had to destroy the resistance of the indigenous population. They had no qualms about saying this. Um, they changed their tune after World War II when suddenly uh, colonialism went out of fashion. And suddenly Zionism was an anti-colonial movement. Um, that was a very smooth trick. Um, but it doesn't cover up the fact that for decades and decades and decades, they openly admitted that Zionism was a colonial movement. When I was living and working in Jerusalem in 1990 and 91 and 92, I discovered the private papers of Yusuf Dia al-Khaldi, who was the mayor of Jerusalem for about 10 years. He was the deputy for Jerusalem in the Ottoman parliament uh, of 1877, 1878. And he wrote a letter to Theodore Herzl. Historians know about it. And he told Herzl, you know, in principle, Zionism may be fine. The idea that the Jews should find a place of refuge, that's fine. But Palestine already has a population. And he told him in detail, several pages of letters written in French, why this was going to be a problem. And he concluded, for the sake of God, leave Palestine alone. So it's not as if they weren't warned. Herzl wrote a well-known letter back to Yusuf Diabasha in which he basically dismissed all of his concerns. He basically brushed them aside. Um, so I use these kinds of personal elements, these kinds of personal narratives, including some of my own experiences, in order to describe what I see as five phases of this war being declared again and again on the Palestinian people. Let me tell you what the five phases are. The first is obvious. It's the Balfour Declaration 
and the mandate for Palestine. The Balfour Declaration was a declaration of war on the Palestinian people. I'm going to go into exactly why I'm describing it as a declaration of war. The finely tuned, smoothly crafted, deceptive, hypocritical British drafting actually conceals a declaration of war on the Palestinian people. I'll describe that in a second. The second declaration of war was the one that was made in 1947 through the United Nations in the form of UN General Assembly Resolution 181 to partition Palestine, which was followed, as we know, by the war and the Nakba. And I'll talk about why I understand that as a declaration of war on the Palestinian people. The third declaration of war came in the wake of the 1967 war. And it was UN Security Council Resolution 242. UN Security Council Resolution 242 is described in universally positive terms. What a wonderful thing, 242, land for peace, alhamdulillah. UN Security Council Resolution 242, among many other things, is a declaration of war on the Palestinian people. I will explain in a minute why that was the case. The fourth of these wars was the 1982 war, the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, the siege of Beirut, the expulsion of the PLO from Beirut. And the fifth of the wars that I describe are the unending wars on Gaza. 2008, 2009, 2012, 2014, and ongoing. Now, what I argue about these wars is that they often were based on or resulted in major international statements that, as I've said, were declarations of war on the Palestinians. Why do I call them this? Let me talk about the Balfour Declaration and the League of Nations mandate for Palestine. If you've ever read the Balfour Declaration, or the mandate, you'll notice a striking absence. The word Palestinian is not there. The word Palestinian Arab is not there. In the Balfour Declaration, there's one people which deserves a national home. That's the Jewish people. There's one group that deserves political and national rights. That's the Jewish people. The 94% of the population, the overwhelming majority, is never described by name in the Balfour Declaration. They are the non-Jewish population of Palestine. Yeah, and the people who are not Jews, the important people are Jews. The unimportant people are these non-Jews. And they do not get political rights. They do not get national rights. They get civil and religious rights. In other words, they are subordinated from the moment that the Balfour Declaration is issued and then incorporated into the Mandate for Palestine a few later, years later to the Jewish people, who are the only people with national rights in Palestine, according to not just Lord Balfour or the British cabinet, but the League of Nations, which passed the Mandate as an international document. This is not just a British document. It now becomes We always say international legitimacy is on our side. No. No. The League of Nations represented international legitimacy. International legitimacy produced a declaration of war on an indigenous people to establish a colonial settler reality in their midst and never recognized that people. That's why I describe this as a declaration of war. What the Balfour Declaration and the mandate essentially amounted to was a constitution uh, for an effort to impose a mainly European settler population which had its own national objectives on the indigenous population. 
What was the British objective? To hold the Palestinians down until the Zionists had a majority. That was their objective throughout. There could be democratic, democratic representative government when the Jews became a, ma a majority. Until then, the British went around uh, real democracy. They couldn't have real democracy. The majority would have said, we don't want the Balfour Declaration. We don't want the Jewish national home. We want independence like you promised to Iraq, like you promised to Jordan, like, you prom like the French promised to Syria and Lebanon. And the British were not going to give that. The British wanted to establish a Jewish national home, and they had to manage the conflict. That term, manage, is very important. We're going to hear it again in a minute. They did so successfully. They managed this conflict successfully until the Great Revolt of 1936-39. I could talk about that, but let me leave it for now. Let me just mention one aspect of that revolt. The British didn't just crush the revolt. They brought in overwhelming power to crush the revolt. If you look at the adult male population of Palestine in 1939, 10% of the adult males in Palestine were killed, wounded, exiled, or imprisoned as a result of the suppression. 10% of the adult male population. They brought in 100,000 troops. The Royal Air Force blew up houses, carried out incredible atrocities, summary executions in the field of, of, of captured and wounded rebels, um, and crushed the revolt. In so doing, they were waging war on the Palestinian people on behalf of their own settler colonial project. So that was the first declaration of war, declared in 1917 and brought to fruition in 36-39. The second declaration of war, I don't need to go into as much because I think you probably know what I'm about to say. This was the resolution to partition Palestine. Palestine in 1947 had a population which was 65% Arab. 35% of the population was Jewish. The majority of the country, including most of the fertile land, was given over to a Jewish state. The Jews owned 6% of the land in Palestine. They got most of the land in Palestine. And earlier, the British had already, in the Peel Partition Plan of 1937, established the principle of what they called transfer. What does this mean? Ethnic cleansing. And that was the principle that was used in 1947. That's the root of the Nakba. Not just giving the Jewish state in the partition resolution of November 29, 1947, 58% of the land to a third of the people, but also admitting that in order to create a Jewish state in a territory that had almost half of the population being Arab, you would have to expel them. That was a necessary condition for the establishment of a Jewish state, and everybody understood that. This was followed, as we know, by the Arab-Israeli War. First of all, the expulsions began long before the Arab states entered the conflict. About 300,000 Palestinians are expelled before May 15, 1948, including over 150,000 urban residents of Yaffa, Haifa, and West Jerusalem, and another 150,000 at Tabaraya, Bisan, other places, um, and then another 150,000 of the rural population. And then after the Arab armies come in, another 450,000 Palestinians are expelled. We know about this. This is the Nakba. What has to be understood is that this was not just an Israeli war on the Palestinians. This was an American-Soviet-Israeli war on the Palestinians. The United States and the Soviet Union forced the partition resolution through the General Assembly. They made countries vote for it. The Americans twisted the arms of their, of their uh, client states in Latin America. There are many accounts of this. The Soviets did the same. 
They then armed the new Israeli state and enabled it to win the war. Without American and Soviet arms, Israel would not have won the 1948 war. So it was a, it was a joint operation. The third declaration of war was in 1967. Here, the war was preceded by an international understanding that established the, the international conditions for dealing with the Palestinians. Um, and this, and, and sorry, here, here the war was followed by an international document which established the conditions for dealing with the Palestinians. And this, as I've said, was UN Security Council Resolution 242. Just as in 1917, the Palestine issue in 1967, in 242, was reduced to almost an insignificant level. No mention of Palestine. The question of Palestine doesn't exist. All of the things that Israel was supposed to do after 1948, return of refugees, as per General Assembly Resolution 194, never mentioned. Uh, adjustments of the frontiers, never mentioned. None of this is mentioned in 242. The only thing in 242 is a just resolution of the problem of the refugees. The refugees aren't even mentioned by name. They're not even described as Palestinians. They're just refugees, insignificant people who have a problem that has to be resolved. I would argue this is another declaration of war on the Palestinian people. In fact, another piece of international legitimacy is arguing there's no such thing as the Palestinians. I don't call 242 the basis for peacemaking because it did not produce peace. You may have noticed, look across the river, there's no peace in Palestine. Uh, it was a resolution designed to manage the conflict. As the British did, so did the Americans. Both of these international documents, the Mandate and 242, served an essential purpose of the Zionist movement. This was to obliterate any mention of the indigenous Palestinian Arab population of the country. My book shows how since Herzl, this obliteration of the Palestinians has been a constant objective of the Zionist movement, of the State of Israel, and of its supporters in the West. And I, I'm trying to stress the importance of the integral relationship between what Israel is doing and between these international declarations made by the great powers. So even if the war was waged on the Palestinians first by the British army, later by Zionist militias, later by the Israeli army, later by Arab armies, later by Lebanese militias, whoever was waging the war on the Palestinians from 1917 until the Gaza Wars. This war was based on U.S.-Israeli agreements and understandings, or British-Israeli agreements and understandings. Wars on the Arab countries, like the Suez War, based on Israeli-British-French agreements. These are not Israeli wars. These are joint wars. And I, 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 my, my argument is this is very, very important. We now have, published by the United States, the conversations between Secretary of Defense McNamara and the head of the Mossad in May 1967, where he gives Israel, McNamara, gives Israel a green light to attack. At the same time as the United States is telling the Arab countries not to attack. I, I was there in the UN, my father worked for the United Nations, when uh, the Jordanian ambassador, Mohammed al-Farra, told a group of Arab diplomats and UN officials that he and other Arab ambassadors had been systematically deceived by Arthur Goldberg, the US ambassador, who, 
who kept telling them, we will prevent the Israelis from attacking. Hold your people back. Don't attack. You must be restrained. We will prevent Israel from attacking. This was part of an agreement between the United States and Israel. We have the documents. We have the American documents. The Americans themselves have published the Foreign Relations of the United States, 1967 War. It's available online or in a published book. We're going to see the same thing with the 1982 war, which is the fourth declaration of war. Similarly to 1967, before the war was launched, Israel was very careful to get the approval of the United States. General Sharon, defense minister at the time, goes to Washington. He meets with Secretary of State Haig, another general. I'm going to do this, this, and this. I'm going to eliminate the PLO from Beirut. I'm going to destroy the Lebanese national movement and install a friendly government. And I'm going to kick the Syrians out of Lebanon. And Haig says, what does Haig say? Make sure you have a good pretext. That's the only thing he says. He doesn't, he doesn't have a problem with the objectives. He says, fine, go ahead. And Haig's assistant in his notes says, green light for Israeli invasion. So in 67 and in 1982, this was not an Israeli war. This was an Israeli-American war. There was a, a, we have documents. We actually have the documents. This is not something I'm making up. This is not something that can be denied. Um, and this is why I argue that this war on Palestine is a joint project. In, this, in the 1982 chapter, I also rely on my personal recollections because I was in Beirut during the siege. Uh, I also go in some depth in the chapter on the 1982 war into the Sabra and Shatila massacres. But what I've discovered are Israeli documents, which are the secret annexes of the Kahan Commission of Inquiry into the Sabra and Shatila massacres. Now, the Kahan Commission whitewashed the Israelis, basically let them off very easily. Sharon, the other generals, Begin, they were, they were described as having made mistakes, but the full horror of what was going on was in the annexes, and we now have the annexes. And the degree of coordination between the Americans and the Israelis and between the Lebanese forces and the Israelis is truly horrifying. It's about 500 pages of these documents. And I think the important thing that they show is that the United States promised the PLO that it would protect the civilian populations in the refugee camps when the PLO military forces who had protected those camps left according to the terms of the agreement. We have the, the agreement on plain paper. There are multiple documents that show that the United States gave those guarantees. They never were faithful to those guarantees. And these documents show, uh, throw a great deal of light on it. You're listening to Rashid Khalidi on Palestine, a case of settler colonialism. For you, our listeners, we are offering this program at no charge. Call us at one 800 triple four one nine seven seven again that number is one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven or you can email us at info at alternative radio dot org again our email info at alternative radio dot o r g let me bring this to a conclusion the fifth war i'm not going to talk about in detail it's the ongoing war on Gaza, which is 
again, it's not a war between Hamas or Jihad and, and Israel. It's an Israeli war on Gaza. The Israelis kill somebody, and then there's a reaction, and they say, this is a war. It's not a war. One of the most powerful countries on earth is using, do you know how many bombs and shells they fired at Gaza in 2014? 21 kilotons. 21 kilotons. A kiloton is a nuclear bomb. The equivalent of 21 medium-sized nuclear bombs were dropped on Gaza. You read the Israeli sources, and you see the volume of fire from Gaza, and you compare that to 21 kilotons. It's not a war. It's not a war. <laughs> There's simply no way of talking about what's happening in Gaza as a, a, a war. I, I won't go into that anymore. Now, I want to talk about some of the more positive aspects of this book, because I think I've depressed you completely. <laughs> I often do that. This book doesn't only analyze the parties that launched this hundred years war on Palestine. And it doesn't only analyze the settler colonial nature of the war. It also describes the successes and the failures uh, of Palestinian efforts to resist this war. Whether this came in the form of attempts to defend uh, Palestine and the Palestinian people with arms in the 1930s during the Thora, in 1947-48, resisting the the Zionist occupation, or through the rise of the PLO in the 1960s, or whether this resistance took other forms, such as the first intifada, which was a mainly peaceful, uh, nonviolent intifada, or the PLO's successful diplomatic strategy in the 1960s and 70s. I go through both the successes and the failures. There are many failures. There are actually a few successes. And I think that these episodes, especially the successes, were among the most successful campaigns in a century of Palestinian resistance. We, we, we commemorate our, vi our defeats. So we, we commemorate Balfour. We commemorate the passage of the, of the partition resolution. These are defeats. We should also, I think, celebrate, not just celebrate, but study our successes, like the first intifada. And I try and draw some lessons from these successes and from the failures for the future. I'm not going to go into this now. It's a whole... That would be a whole lecture. But what I'm arguing is that there's much in the history of Palestinian resistance to this war on Palestine and the Palestinian people that can and should be studied in order to devise new strategies for the Palestinians in the present and in the future. Now, before I end, I want to leave you with a ray of hope about this Hundred Years' War. And I understand that it's very hard to think of a ray of hope in a situation where there are many negative trends. But in order to reverse those negative trends, I think several conditions will have to be achieved. One of these conditions is Palestinian unity. And not just Palestinian unity, not just some ramshackle agreement forced through uh, between factions that are basically uh, both bankrupt and have no strategy but a, a, a real unity around a real strategic plan. This is absolutely necessary. It's not present today. There's no strategy. There's no plan. Uh, the, the national movement is divided, and I think it is at one of its lowest levels since 1919. Um, and I think that the first precondition for changing the negative trends is for the, and in order for the Palestinians to achieve their rights is to achieve real unity around a real clear strategic objective. That's the first. The second is equally important. 
In the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, Palestinians understood that they were part of this bia, of this environment, this Arab environment. And they understood how important that was. I think we've forgotten that a little bit. Another precondition for changing the situation is a fundamental change in the Arab situation. This can't be done by the Palestinians. It's for the Arab peoples themselves. Division, weakness, dependence on outside powers is a vital precondition for the hegemony of Israel in this region. It was necessary for them to win the 67 war. It was necessary for them to win the 82 war. It is necessary for them to continue to dominate. As long as the Arab countries can't see beyond the end of their nose, none of them can agree with one another. As long as they're fighting each other in Libya. Libya is an Arab war, inter-Arab war. Yemen and other parts of the Arab world by proxy. Uh, we cannot possibly have the precondition for changing uh, the Palestinian situation. We have to do the biggest job. Any unity and, and strategy. But this is the second thing that's important. Equally serious in the Arab world is the absence of egalitarian democracy in most of our countries. The Arab Center in Doha, in Qatar, does a survey of 12 countries, thousands of respondents. Public opinion is supportive of the Palestinians. Why does that not translate into policy? Because the governments don't represent their peoples. It's very simple. If you had democratic governments in the Arab world, public opinion would at least be able to make itself heard. Can public opinion make itself heard in Egypt or most other Arab countries? No, it cannot. And so you have governments that do anything they want, or more specifically anything America or Israel want, without having to worry about their people. If you had a democracy, you would have what we have in the United States, a corrupt, dysfunctional system, but one where public opinion can have an effect. We have a corrupt, dysfunctional system where public opinion is excluded. And so democracy is bad, but it's better than the alternatives. That's Churchill who said that, actually. Big colonialist and a big Zionist, but anyway. So this is a prerequisite for a change. Uh, this situation, these regimes, this anti-democratic... The Arab world is an anomaly in the entire world. East Asia used to have dictatorial regimes, South Korea, Taiwan, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Africa, East Europe, communist governments, Latin America. In most of those regions, there are some autocratic regimes, but there are many democratic regimes. Only the Arab world is an exception. In the entire world, one absolute monarchy after one military dictatorship, after one miserable oligarchy that steals all the money. That's all we have. There are a few exceptions, Kuwait, here, Lebanon, and even Lebanon, you can see the mess that Lebanon's in. Because they have a democracy, but they, they don't have an egalitarian democracy. What's happening in Algeria, what's happening in Sudan, what's happening in Lebanon, what's happening in Iraq, are a sign that the people don't accept this. Now, can they overcome the oligarchies that steal all the money? That's another, another question. Iraq produces 4.5 million barrels of oil per day. That's $100 billion a year. They don't have clean water. They don't have electricity. They don't have sewers. They have $100 billion a year, all of it being stolen, none of it going to any. And they have a democracy, which is why the people are in the streets. I want to come to the, the area where I think there is the most hope. And you're going to be surprised when I say this, because I'm going to talk about the United States and Europe. Now, these are the essential backers of this colonial settler war on Palestine. And here 
we have a president in the United States who's the most pro-Israeli leader the United States has ever had. Here, we have legal campaigns against BDS, against Palestinian rights. Uh, the president just issued an executive order with which he's going to try and shut down any, any attempt to talk about Palestine by describing it as anti-Semitic. We have a new prime minister in Britain who's the most pro-Israel prime minister, and there have been many, uh, going right back to Lloyd George. Uh, in a very long time. In spite of this, in spite of these campaigns, in spite of these hostile governments, um, there is a growing groundswell of popular support for Palestinian rights, in the, at least in the United States, in many areas. I'm going to talk about five. The first is on campuses. On American campuses, in spite of literally tens of millions of dollars being spent by the other side, Ron Lauder, Estee Lauder's son, former pre pre uh, president of the Conference of Major Jewish Organizations, has pledged $25 million to fight BDS. $25 million. Sheldon Adelson, the biggest donor to Trump, has pledged $4 million. And there's a dozen of them. There's 20 of them. There's 50 of them, each one giving millions. In spite of that, BDS is winning. Columbia Student Council voted a week ago 25 to 12 to have a BDS referendum. The Barnard students voted last year in favor of BDS. The Brown students voted last year in favor of BDS. These are Ivy League universities. And many of the students are Jewish who are voting for BDS. A very large proportion of them. Barnard, after Yeshiva and Brandeis, has the highest proportion of Jewish students of any American university. They voted in favor of BDS last year. That you have that kind of thing happening all over college campuses. BDS is not going to achieve a boycott. There's not going to be a boycott of Israel. It's not going to achieve divestment. Uh, Barnard turned down the vote, the university administration. It's not going to even achieve sanctions, but it has opened up the issue in a way where we're winning people over to our side just by the issue that they've never allowed to be debated. Remember, the idea was to not have any mention of Palestine to obliterate mention of Palestine. That's always been an objective of design. Herzl says it in his diaries. We just want to get rid of them. We want them to disappear. We want them to not exist. BDS is, making us, is bringing us into existence on college campuses where the brains of a new generation of the, Palace, of the, Arab, um, sorry, of the American upper middle and middle classes are being trained and educated. This is an, an astonishing achievement by a bunch of students. There's nobody helping them. This is not faculty, it's not me, it's the students. They never ask me questions. You know, your daughters. <laughs> they, never, they never come to us. They do whatever they want. And they do it very well, actually. Um, so that's one area where there's been remarkable progress. Another area is within the Democratic Party. Now, the Democratic Party was the party of Harry Truman, who was the man who was responsible for partition in 1947. The Democratic Party has always been very, very pro-Israel. But things are changing. The Democratic Party is changing at the base. It has more young people. It has more minorities. It has more liberal supporters. And it is turning more and more sympathetic to Palestinian rights. Trump's embrace and the Republican Party's embrace of Netanyahu and the Israeli right has alienated most Democrats, even the Zionist leadership of the Democratic Party, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, uh, Obama, the Clintons. Even those people are being forced 
by the base to move a little bit. And the base is pushing, pushing, pushing. You have candidates for the presidency of the United States saying aid to Israel should be conditioned on proper treatment of the Palestinians. That would have been inconceivable in American political discourse 20 or 10 years ago. And that's an indication of where they think the base of the party is. I'm not saying that's going to lead to political change today or tomorrow or next year or in three years. But it's a sign of the times. And it's very important. If one of the two major political parties decides to take a position in favor of Palestinian rights, things eventually uh, could change. Third area where there's been major change is within the Jewish community, especially among young people in the Jewish community who are becoming more critical of Israel and more sympathetic to Palestinian rights. Um, There are many pro-Israel organizations on campus and across the United States. But the ones that now have the most support and are growing in size and strength are things like Jewish Voice for Peace, J Street, Not In Our Name, Jewish organizations made up mainly of young people who are supportive of Palestinian rights. Those are the ones that are growing. And there are many Zionist students, they're very strong organizations supporting Israel on campus and among young people. But this is changing, and it's changing actually more rapidly than I would have expected. There's a fourth area where there have been significant changes. And this is academia. It is almost impossible in American academia to publish the kinds of lies about Palestine that were considered truth 30 or 40 years ago, whether in sociology, whether in history, political science, anthropology. Overwhelming majorities of Middle East studies, of American studies, of ethnic studies, of anthropologists, people in English and comparative literature are increasingly sympathetic to Palestine. And the kinds of things that were taught to students, the kinds of lies that were peddled to students in the past, are just no longer in an academic discourse. Um, There are many Zionists in universities. There are many powerful people in administrations who fight tooth and nail against this shift. But many, many things are changing. We have established a Center for Palestine Studies. It's 10 years old next year. Uh, There's uh, new directions in Palestine studies at Brown University. There are two centers in England, one at Exeter and one at SOAS. Uh, This is completely new. There are many, many Israel studies centers. We have an Institute for Israel and Jewish Studies at the Columbia campus, richly endowed, millions of dollars in endowment. We have more people at our activities, which we finance ourselves, Ahna, faculty, I mean, we, get, we get support from our own community. We have more students and more community people come to our events than they have go to their events. They have all the money in the world, and we have people or at least more people than they do. And that's just one example. i give you one more example. I edit the Journal of Palestine Studies, which has been in existence now for decades. And everything that we have is online. Last year, we had 200,004 downloads of articles from the Journal of Palestine Studies. Think about that. That means people actually took the time to download a whole article. That's what academics are reading. Our production is now seen by students uh, writing papers, by by graduate students writing dissertations, as the resource. Uh, This is new, and that's an example of the change. The last change I want to talk about is among Arab Americans and Muslim Americans. Um, You've heard of Rashida Tlaib. You've heard of Ilhan Omar. Uh, They're just two examples of a much broader phenomenon. 
because Arab Americans and Muslim Americans are becoming more active politically, more of them are running for office, you don't hear about the ones who run for mayor of Patterson. The mayor of Patterson is Palestinian, big city in New Jersey. You don't hear about the fact that Palestinians, Arabs, and Muslims are becoming more politically active. Uh, there's a reason for this. The reason for this is that every other major ethnic community in the United States, from African Americans to Jewish Americans to Italian Americans, whatever, the big ones, they've been in the United States for over a century. The United States changed its immigration laws in 1924 to keep out Arabs, Chinese, blacks, Jews, and so on. But those people, they've been there for six, seven, eight generations. They're assimilated, they're American, they have confidence, they've won political power. Most Palestinians, most Arabs, most Muslims came after that law was changed in 1965. So we're just now getting the second and third generation of people who are fully American, speak perfect English, have been to university, and their parents went to university. The generation before, people like Edward Said and, and Ibrahim Abu Lord, Allah uh, were people who were born here and came to the United States, went to the United States. These are people born in the United States. They have full confidence in themselves as Americans. They understand the law, they understand the political system, and they are doing uh, amazing things. And it is gonna, it's going to change American politics. That's the building block for the Senate, the House, and ultimately uh, politics in the United States. It's a complicated, long process, but it's clearly beginning. Taib, let me conclude. Israel and the Zionist movement are and have always been dependent on support from abroad. Now, this is not to deny that Israel is a powerful state. This is not to deny that Israel has enormous capabilities, nuclear, technological, and many other spheres. But it needs a metropole like the United States to succeed. The trends that I have been talking about, Arab American and Muslim American participation, academia, the Democratic Party, changes in the Jewish community, and changes on campus. These trends show that something is changing in the United States. And they underline the incompatibility of a state that is created exclusively for one people in a country that had an indigenous population that's been oppressed. What's in the Israeli nation state law passed last year, or earlier this year, what, what Israel is now proudly proclaiming, only Jews have a right to self-determination in the land of Israel, is incompatible with liberal democratic values. Now, there are illiberal, undemocratic people like Trump himself. And those people will have to, will have to be overcome. But there are a lot of people who don't believe in, in those kinds of racist, anti-democratic values. Those people are a majority in the United States. And sooner or later, uh, that's going to change things there are only three outcomes for settler colonial situations. The first is that settlers eliminate the indigenous population. That's what happened in Australia. It's what happened in North America. It's what happened in New Zealand. The second possibility is that the settlers are driven out. It's what happened in Algeria. But that's not usually what happens. Usually or often what happens is that some form of coexistence is finally reached between the indigenous population and the settlers, without discrimination and without oppression, which means, in effect, without Zionism. Now, that's pie in the sky. That's not something that's going to happen tomorrow. We're still far away from such an ideal situation. The growth of the trends that I've talked about in the United States means that there's now a fighting chance for resistance 
to this colonial settler project in the metropole, which it can't do without. Hopefully, sooner or later, the situation in Palestine and the Arab world will change for the better. When that happens, then the war on Palestine can finally be brought to an end and the people of Palestine can finally find peace. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. It's an honor. Uh, I'm very happy about the examples you mentioned uh, at the end of your lecture about the changes in America, but uh, what do these changes, do they have a future with anti-Zionism becoming synonymous to anti-Semitism? My second question is that uh, your call for coexistence, where did it reach us until now? Mm. What authority do we have to say for people who have lived in Jaffa, in, in, in Accra, and uh, do, we, do we have the right to surrender their homes, their lands, their history there, and say, well, we want what's there in the West Bank and have I, I to a two-state two solution? Yeah, thank you. I, I didn't say that. When I said coexistence, I said coexistence without oppression and without discrimination. What we have now is a situation imposed on us by Zionism. We have to finish with that. That's what, that's what our liberation is going to entail. And it's not just our liberation. Settler colonial projects create peoples. There is a thing called the American people, created by the destruction of Native Americans by their millions and the enslaving of Africans by their millions. It exists. It is a racist country with all kinds of terrible, terrible leftovers from the time of slavery and from the time of the elimination of, of, the, uh, of the Native American population. But it is a people. The Zionism, against everybody's expectation, seems to have created a population that's now been there three or four generations. Now, I don't think that it is physically possible or morally right to kick them out. How do you live with them? That's another problem. But there, are, there is now implanted in our land another people. We have succeeded as the Algerians succeeded. We have succeeded as the South Africans have succeeded in not being eliminated. This, this resistance has enabled us to maintain as many people in Palestine a little more probably than they, have, than they have brought. But they've been there now for generations and generations. They're not going anywhere. But I think that if your aim is to liberate, and by that you mean reverse the process of history, I don't think that's going to happen. It happened in Algeria for very specific reasons. If you go and check the history of settler colonial experiments, it doesn't happen in many cases. I mean, even today in Kenya, there's still a settler population. They live on a basis of equality. And they're in a much different situation as are South Africa because there's so many fewer. They've succeeded in bringing this enormous settler population. The country we should look at is not Algeria. The country we should look at is Ireland. Ireland is the oldest example of settler colonialism. 800 years of the English implanting English and Scots settlers in order to hold down the Irish. And the Irish are the only people between the two wars that succeeded in liberating themselves partially. The Irish Republic. They're still the six counties. And I would bet that they're going to figure out a way to coexist with their settlers. They have to. You can't, you can't tell somebody who came in 1400, go back to Scotland. They're 12, 14, 20 generations. By the time we finish this process, of liberation, they're going to be 10, 12, 6, 8 generations. You're going to say to them, you don't belong here. They can't control us. They can't claim they're the only people with rights. They can't discriminate against us.
They can't take our property. But to say they can't live here? No. Not only can it's not just a matter of living there. They have created a national entity. Like all of the other settler colonial national entities. They have horrible character. Go to Australia. It's worse than the United States in terms of the racism and the discrimination against the Aboriginal native Australian population. But that, it, is, it is a reality, Australia. You can't turn back the clock and return it to the indigenous population. It's just not going to happen. Um, so that's, you're, you're, that's, that's your second question. Your first question was about anti-Zionism and uh, anti-Semitism. This is a desperate ploy by the Zionists. When you don't have an argument, basically you say, I don't allow you to talk. And they're reduced to this because they don't have an argument anymore. They have a nation state law which claims the entire country belongs only to them. They have a rabbinate which discriminates against American conservative and reformed Jews. They have a system that's becoming more and more autocratic. They have all kinds of things that are alienating even their own supporters. And to say that this cannot be criticized, leaving, leaving aside what they do to us, is outrageous. And the amazing thing is that if you look at the people who are opposing this, many of them are pro-Israel Democrats. They say you cannot stifle freedom of speech. Some of them, if you read very carefully, they say, many anti-Zionists are Jews. What's wrong with being anti-Zionist? It's one solution to the Jewish problem. It's probably not the correct solution. It caused enormous misery to Jews. Look what it did to the Jewish populations of the Arab world. Zionism destroyed the oldest Jewish populations in the world, in Baghdad, in Damascus. It destroyed them. It wasn't us. I mean, Arabs participated. But the thing that forced the Iraqi Jews to flee was setting off bombs in synagogues and Jewish cultural centers by people working for the Mossad. I actually have an Iraqi Jewish friend who told me his mother introduced him to an old man in Israel who told him we were involved in it. I can tell you who the station chief in Tehran was. He's the same guy who did the American, who blew up the American institutions in Cairo in 1954. So what, they did in Baghdad in 51. They did, that's Zionism. That's one of many, many things. That's, so Jews know this. Sephardi Jews, Mizrahi Jews, Arab Jews are beginning to question all of this. Type fine, that's fine. And they, those are people who will also be with us in saying, no, Zionism should be criticized. It's not anti-Semitism. Are there people who are anti-Semites who hide behind anti-Zionism? Of course there are. Anti-Semitism is very powerful in the United States. It's even more powerful in Europe. It led to the destruction of six million Jews. And it led to Jews being kicked out of country after country after the 14th century, 15th century. Italy, France, Spain, England. So it's a, it's a powerful force. And of course, some people will hide behind anti-Zionism. But that doesn't mean that anti-Zionism. And that's an that's a, a elementary argument. So I think, I think we're going to win this. It's going to be very hard. Because the, the weight of the, and the money behind this campaign is, is impressive. But I think we're going to, we have in the United States the First Amendment, which protects free speech. And it's not just some law. It's the constitution of the land. And many, many people are committed to it, including people who like Israel. So I, I think in time we're going to win this. That was Rashid Khalidi on Palestine, a case of settler colonialism. He spoke in Amman, Jordan in mid-December 2019. Rashid Khalidi is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. He's the editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies and the author of the Hundred Years' War on Palestine. 
This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. Now in its 34th year, we are independent and are supported solely by individuals just like you. Every week we feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For you, our listeners, we're offering today's program, Rashid Khalidi on Palestine, a case of settler colonialism, at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can email us at info at alternativeradio.org. Again, our email is info at alternativeradio.org. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening, and please stay safe. And hello, and welcome to CJSW 90.9 FM. My name is Chantal Chagnon. I am Cree, Ojibwe, and Métis from Muskeg Lake Cree Nation in Saskatchewan, which is in Treaty 6 territory. But I'd like to acknowledge the land upon which we stand, because if you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going. This is the home of the Treaty 7 people, the Nitsitapi, or Blackfoot, of Siksika, Gainai, and Pagani, the Beaver people of Tsutsina, and the Stony Nakoda of Morley, which includes Chiniki, Bears Paw, and Wesley First Nations. We also acknowledge Métis Region 3, for we are walking in their footsteps.
Fuck, 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 fuck. 